Well, do turn back to 2 Corinthians um, chapter 12, which we're going to look at. It was great to be asked to speak on the subject of sufficient grace and to be asked to speak on this passage because I've never spoken on it before. And so that sort of makes me um, have to dig into the word. And I'm really excited about the subject of how God gives enough grace. God gives sufficient grace for every situation. Let's just begin with uh, thinking about the context of what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul was given a thorn in the flesh. What's going on in the Corinthian church? Paul was involved with the Corinthian church from an early stage. He founded it. And they were well taught by him, and then they were well taught by someone called Apollos. And yet it was a church that seemed to have many, many problems. And at the stage where Paul writes this letter, there are some problems in the Corinthian church. And we get an, a sense of that by reading the chapters from 10 through to 13, where he seems to be dealing with something that might be called super-Christianity. You know how super-Christianity works? It works, it's just all about success. Have a look, for instance, at chapter 10 uh, and verses 10 through to 11. People are criticising Paul, and this is what they're saying. They say, chapter, chapter 10, verse 10, they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech of no account. In other words, people are looking for successful speech. He talks in chapter uh, 11 and verse 5 about these people. Uh, some translations, it comes out in 11 verse 5, as these people as super apostles. I consider I am not the least inferior to those super apostles or the very chiefest apostles, as it says in the King James Version. Next uh, thing you read, chapter 11, verse 6, um, that uh, he, Paul says, well, even if I am unskilled in speaking compared with those people, because they're really better trained, they seem to be, they don't degrade themselves like Paul degrades himself uh, in his ministry by doing uh, lowly things. And what Paul says is actually these super apostles are really false apostles. Chapter 11 and verse 13. In fact, they're workers of Satan. Chapter 11 and verse 14. He even berates the Corinthians for what they're prepared to put up with. Because what they're doing is in fact they're accepting uh, a very hard lot from these uh, people who seem to be presenting themselves as leaders. Paul says he's worried. And this is how he expresses his worry. Chapter 11, verses 3 to 4. He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from the sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accept, you put up with it readily enough. The problem is this. It's another Jesus. Now think about that. Jesus, we love Jesus, don't we? We really love Jesus, and yet someone could be using exactly the same name, Jesus, and mean something different. And in fact, there is a danger that people could entirely agree with everything that we have on the UBM doctrinal statement, everything, and it could still be another religion. Because it would be all about success. And though the cross would be there technically in some sort of 
box. It would be small. It would be minimised. The whole emphasis is on doing well. Success, image and all the rest. You know these leaders that it it seems from the time of, of Paul? They gave great talks. They looked good. They had followers. They had admirers. They probably had a good standing in society. And people thought, well, if you really want to reach Corinth, don't we want to have people with good standing in society? Well, is that something that was just a problem back then? Do you think it could happen today that we could possibly get enamoured with success and with image and so on? Well, of course, we just think about yesterday in Parliament when our society was voting on whether we might actually officially kill people who were vulnerable. Of course, there were lots of excuses said, oh, well, it's only if they really want it. But the, the underlying message is you're valuable to society when you contribute to it, but really when, when you're getting past it, there's no value you being around. Or you think in Christian uh, so-called circles, there is something called the prosperity gospel. Now, virtually no one who preaches the prosperity gospel, will ever say that they're preaching the prosperity gospel. They always have in the very, very small print that some people might suffer somewhere. You know, it's rare in the Christian life. But the emphasis, where they um, uh, put, put all of their emphasis, is on Christianity as being about success. It's widespread in Africa, South America. It has softer forms in the Western world. But... They say God wants you to be blessed and the normal Christian life is success. I have nothing against full colour printing. Full colour printing is a great invention and something we should be using on the beaches. But even in the UK, there are so-called Christian magazines that are presenting Christianity as a source of earthly happiness. And that sort of uh, experience as the normal Christian experience And we need, as an organisation and a movement and a family, even to think about how we put on our recruiting material. Are we saying, come on a beach mission and you will be really happy? Or are we, in fact, presenting a message of calling people to follow Jesus and take up their cross? I have to say, I have had some of the happiest moments of my entire life on beach mission teams. And I'm sure some of you can share exactly the same. But... That's a gift of God. It's not something we should be seeking after. There's such a joy in serving Jesus. Yes, there will be great joy as in, in the Christian life. Also, because the success of the gospel is absolutely inevitable. Doesn't that give you great joy to know that we're on the winning side? But there still can be very easily a shift towards success, a focus on success in earthly things, and enjoying the super-Christian life. Think about what we pray for. Sometimes you can go to prayer meetings and everyone's praying for people's health, which is good, and they're praying that people would have jobs that don't have jobs. That's good to pray for too. Uh, And we might pray that more people come to church. We might pray that many children would come to our meeting. Those are all really good things. But you could be praying them with two different intentions. You could be praying those things for the sake of God and his kingdom. Or actually, don't you think the Tiddlywinks Club wants to have more people come to their meetings too? In other words, you can simply want to have things go well. 
And that's not what we should be seeking about. So there is a danger that we could be using the same language and actually have shifted our focus from the real Jesus. And, and Paul has that fear that these Corinthians are going to keep all of the language of real Christianity and yet by those same things mean something different. Our aim in life is not to be successful. It's not the goal that God's given us. He's given us the job of being faithful, which is quite different. And and if you have been given a a command in in the army by uh, the general that you you are to hold some mountain pass against impossible forces, well, that's your job to do. and, And so our job is not to see success. Although I do believe if we are faithful to God, there will be such blessing, we will see the gospel spread. Well, what happens in this passage is in this context, Paul says, well, those folk, those super Christians, those super apostles, they're boasting about the success of Christianity. I am going to tell you about my ministry. And so he goes on from chapter 11, verses uh, 23 onwards, to tell them about actually all the difficulties he's had, how he has been beaten 39 times. Five times over. Now, why 39? Because the law says 40, and they didn't want to miscount, so they always stopped one short. Um, and he, he's um, been shipwrecked. What did he think he looked like after he'd been shipwrecked? Well, of course he looked like a drowned rat, didn't he? He tells them about the great time when he was let down in a basket over the, the walls of Damascus. Well, that's a really cool way of exiting a city, isn't it? You know, in terms of street cred, Paul's wanting to say, I didn't care about that. That's not what it's about. It's not about image I was simply seeking to serve God and spread the message. And then he shares something. And this is what uh, I want to read the first uh, six or... Oh, I'm going to read the, the passage again, in fact. Starting from chapter 12 and verse 1. This is God's word. I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which a man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no man will th- uh, may think more of me than he sees in me or hears in me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may work, may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I want to talk about three things that Paul was given. The first thing, point number one, Paul is given an amazing experience. It's 14 years before the time he's writing. You do a bit of adding up and it's probably around the year 43-ish. Um, He's been a Christian for a few years. He hasn't yet begun his first missionary journey. According 
uh, to what we can see from Galatians 1, he would be in Syria or Cilicia, uh, his hometown, or that's Turkey, um, uh, at this time. In the book of Acts, we read that Paul was given visions on six different occasions, four before this one and two after this. And here he shares about a vision he's had, but he shares it in a very strange way. The opponents in Corinth have been boasting about how great a life they've had, what their great experience is. Paul boasts about how he's been beaten so many times. And then he shares about this experience he's had. And he's clearly talking about himself. We know that because he's, uh, the, the context is about what he has experienced and he's going to go on to revelations. Clearly also from verse, the logic of verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited, it doesn't make any sense if those revelations haven't come to him. And yet what makes it slightly more difficult to process is he talks about it as if it's someone else. I know someone, I know a bloke who had this experience. Why would he do that? Well, I think sometimes God uses each one of us in remarkable ways. Someone may have been saved, you know, as a result of your witness on the beach. And that's amazing. That person's entire eternity has been transformed. And that was while you were sharing the gospel with them. Now, if you reflect on that for a while, you could think, well, I've really done something pretty major. But of course, it was simply God working in you. You don't, you shouldn't get any credit for that. You're simply just doing your job. And so sometimes... It's good to put a distance between the things that God has worked through us and our own uh, sense. And what happened to this man, who is Paul, is he was caught up to the third heaven, the highest heaven. Not supposed to speculate about how many heavens there are. What Paul makes clear is he goes to paradise, the place where Christ said to the dying thief he would be. He goes into uh, that most amazing place. Now, whether this was in the body or out of the body, he doesn't know. That's something God knows. But if it was outside the body, it was so vivid that it was just as if he was in the body. You know, you could really feel it. If it was in the body, that's also absolutely amazing. But that's not the important thing. The important thing is what he saw in paradise and what he heard. He heard things he could not say. Things that were simply too unutterable. Things that were simply amazing that had to be hidden from the entire human race. There was a ban on him telling anyone. Now I want you to imagine, last Wednesday when our uh, Queen uh, celebrated that she was the longest reigning monarch and uh, God save our Queen, we've had a better Queen than we deserve, haven't we? But you know, I want you to imagine that last Wednesday she had asked for a special audience with you. She said, you know, I find it rather difficult to having no one to unburden with. I can't really speak to Philip very much. He's so, so, so busy. And I just wanted to tell you what I really felt. Now, you won't be able to tell anyone, but I wonder if you'd just come round Windsor Castle with me and I, I, you know, we'll, I'll give you a private tour and then I'll tell you, you know, how I feel over these years. I haven't been able to talk to anyone about how I feel about the different 13 Prime Ministers who served under me, which ones I preferred and which ones I didn't and, you know, and so on. So, and, uh, do come round. And, and she'd really unburden you, but she said to you, as, as you went away at the end of the day, and said, but you mustn't tell anyone. Now, how would you feel about that? You would feel amazed, that privilege that you have been let into what 
I mean, we know that the newspapers speculate, but no one knows, do they? What the Queen does? The Queen have feelings, you know? Uh, you know, no, just no one knows, and that you, are the one person on the entire globe, might be let in to uh, have this uh, great um, uh, experience with her and tour all, all of the private rooms and all, all that sort of stuff. It would be utterly amazing and might make you feel rather special about yourself. Well, Paul got a view of paradise and he heard things that he was not allowed to pass on. Now, we know that God loves doing wonderful surprises. People in the Old Testament times thought he was just about saving the Jews. And the wonderful surprise is the gospel is for the whole world. Jews at the time of Jesus thought they needed a redeemer who's going to like, save them from the Romans. They got one who saved them from something even greater. Their sins. Wow. Each time God's doing far more than they could ask or imagine. That's what God does. It says, I hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard the things that God's prepared. In other words, that there is amazing surprise to come. Paul got let in on that. How do you think he felt? Well, how would you feel? After being given those amazing experiences, he's given the second thing. Second thing he's given is Paul is given a severe trial. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surprising greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. What was this thorn? We're not told. What we're not told in the Bible is actually significant. Because if you've been told what it was, that would be really great for people who had that particular thorn in the flesh. They could really relate. If it was a backache, everyone with backache would feel really related to it. But the people with something else wouldn't. It's actually significant that it's not told. Now, I speculate it might have been his eyesight, some people think, because after all, uh, Galatians 4, the Galatians were ready to pluck out their eyes, maybe to share one. Um, uh, Galatians 6, he talks about what big handwriting he's got, and then, then he talks in Acts 22 about knowing the high priest, and then Acts 23 doesn't seem to recognise him. So, you know, th- there are various ideas, but we're not told. We're simply told it's a thorn in the flesh. Now, thorn doesn't mean literal thorn, The thorn is an image, but the flesh probably is literal. It's something that really hurt Paul. Why was he given the thorn in the flesh? Two completely different reasons. Number one, Satan's reason. A messenger. Satan sent a messenger to buffet him. Not in the sense that a uh, boat is buffeted, but in the older sense of a buffet with a fist. Or, as some translations say, to harass. Others, torment. I'll take all of those. It means to beat up. You know the the films and the books that have the bad guy who's got all his gang around him and he just nods and then the gang moves in and beats up the victim, yeah? You know the way it just, that's, that's what Satan likes doing. He wants to beat you up. He actually enjoys just seeing that suffering in you. That's the first reason. Messenger of Satan. Reason number two, a completely different reason. God's reason to keep Paul from being puffed up. Those two things together. How does that work? Well, it's pretty incredible, isn't it? We have different views about exactly how we should express this. 
you don't need to understand God's sovereignty because God is so utterly amazing. We just need to accept that those two things were both true at the same time. Now, what do we know about thorns? Firstly, thorns hurt a lot. Thorns came after the fall, did they? Well, if there were thorns before the fall, they weren't very thorny thorns, if you see what I mean. They, 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 so this sort of hurting, this pain, is something that comes in that cursed world. And Satan has one intention, to beat up, to destroy. It's quite clear, Satan wanted to destroy and crush Job. And as he went, he has to get permission. He has to be allowed to um, do what he does to Job. And yet what God says to, to Satan in Job chapter 2 is, you incited me against him. So somehow Satan was working with one intention and God was working in a completely different way with another intention. We also see it's very significant. This text says that the thorn was given. Is it believable that that thorn was a gift? That God really has good purposes through all this? Well, there's mystery here because Satan and God are utterly contrasting in every way. Let us not think that this is like dual agency. No, let's not draw parallels between God and Satan because they are so opposite. And it's not that God is making Satan do what his dirty work for him. It's not that God is in any way connected to evil. Simply we know, God is sovereign over everything and as far as God was concerned, this thorn was a gift. Think about the mystery of the crown of thorns. Those Roman soldiers, as they twisted those long thorns that they were going to put onto Christ's head, their intention was entirely mockery. Their intention was to cause pain. And yet, they were the first people to crown our Lord Jesus. And they were doing so exactly at that moment when his kingship of the universe was being won on the cross. What an amazing thing that their intention should be one thing and God's working should be something so completely different. And that's what's going on here. Satan has the intention of beating Paul up and God has a good intention to make Paul more like Christ. We don't need to understand how that happens. We just need to accept that it is that way. We know that illness is bad. There are people here who are ill, some who are very ill. And we pray for their recovery. We know that Christ healed the sick. And even as he healed the sick, uh, he was pushing back Satan's boundaries. But some people think that because God loves life, and because Christ healed the sick, that everyone should be healed. Or that Satan can be credited to be the cause of every illness. And the Bible teaches quite clearly that that is wrong. And the Bible tells us here that Paul pleaded three times that the Lord would take this thorn in the flesh away from him. Whatever it was, whatever physical ailment or some other problem, Paul wanted to be rid of it. For a start, it was a thorn. Thorns are, by definition, intensely painful. This gave him a, a, a great pain And to be quite honest, when you have that sort of pain, it stops you concentrating on other things. It seemed to hinder ministry. And we are told that Paul prays three times. By the way, it shows us how deliberate and how focused his prayers are. Now, there are some things we pray for that we completely lose count of how many times we prayed for. 
your non-Christian family as you prayed for them? Of course you can't count how many times you prayed for them. But there are some things I think it would be good if we actually knew how many times we prayed for them. That we were actually so deliberate and so focused in our prayers that we would actually be able to count them. And yet, he stops praying after three times. Why? Because God answered him directly. We need to distinguish between things that we should always pray for. Those uh, non-Christian family, we pray for uh, f- forever until until they're, they're saved. But there are also some things we need to accept and pass on and not seek ever to pray for. Uh, we've got to balance this because the Bible gives us the story of the persistent widow. But it's to do with the type of thing. This wasn't a spiritual goal to be rid of that thorn. Paul needed to realise that he needed to be content with what he'd been given. Satan had a bad intention, but God had a good intention. Who won? Well, Paul did get beaten up. He really did get beaten up on different occasions. But he did not get puffed up. And therefore, Satan got his intention and he loses. God got his intention and he wins. So Paul was given great a great experience. He was given a great trial. And thirdly, and most importantly, he was given sufficient grace and strength. Paul, God answers him, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What are the thorns in your flesh? Well, maybe you don't have any. Don't worry about that, just wait. <laughs> come. But some have physical illness, some psychological illness. Some are just weighed down by the illness of another. The family needs, the long-term caring needs. As I've just been here, you know, since yesterday, I have heard of really intense pains that many people here bear. The long-term thought of unconverted family. They're all different pains. They're all painful, like a thorn. They press in. It's hard to think of anything else. God has announced that he wants everyone to be saved. He says that on two occasions very clearly. 1 Timothy 2.4 and 2 Peter 3.9. But he hasn't promised that he will take away every thorn. There are some thorns that will be there temporary and some are permanent. They're here to stay. But what does God say? If that is a thorn you have to bear, my grace is is enough. My grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. How does it connect God's grace and power? It's quite simply this. It's not the sort of power that the super apostles want to have. They want to have power to control people. This is power to bear something. Now what God doesn't do once the thorn has been given is to give an anaesthetic. Something that actually takes away the pain. What he does is gives enough grace to be able to bear under that pain which is something completely different in contrast to super christianity which wants to have everyone being all success and everything in the right place paul teaches that the greatest power of god is displayed in weakness it's always like that god chose the smallest nation israel to become his people he chose a guy who He said he couldn't talk, Moses, to write more in the Old Testament than anyone else. 
Um, he told Gideon he had too many people to fight with. He uses a little captive girl to witness to Naaman. And Christ, I think, chose his own mother, which no one else has done. Chose that young Mary um, to be his own mother. We, we just see each time he doesn't choose the great and the powerful. And he chose Paul to be his apostle. Paul, who had a long-term physical affliction, which means that by today's definition, he would be someone with a disability in our culture today, wouldn't he? He'd be formally defined as someone with a disability. He had a thorn in the flesh. And he was the one who uh, took the gospel to Europe, trained up leaders to replace him, died a martyr's death. It was that person. Why would God choose someone uh, with, with a, a disability like that to do all of those things. Why wouldn't he choose someone who's super successful, looks great, speaks in a great way, has got great bodily presence, can do everything? Because God's strength is made perfect in weakness. And at the end of time, when we look back, we're going to see that there are so many reversals. Those who seem to be the weakest will often have had the biggest spiritual impact in their ministries. Why? Because God doesn't do glory-sharing arrangements. You know, some, uh, some of us might want to make glory-sharing arrangements with God. And it goes like this. You know, you can get loads and loads of glory. You can get 99 point something percent. I just want to have a little bit of credit myself. A little bit. Just a small amount. Because compared with all the credit you get, can't we just have a little bit for us? And God says, no. I don't share my glory at all. Which means that whenever... Someone gets too exalted in the church and that isn't Jesus Christ. That person has to be brought down. Has to be because God doesn't share his glory. God is jealous for his glory. He won't do it. He chooses to use weak people more than strong people. And he also uses to use, likes to use those weak people's weaknesses more than their strength. You see, if, if someone's really good at something like they're an athlete, uh, then if you can just enhance their performance a bit with a drug, that, you know, and they don't get spotted, well, they can get credit that it was them. Because it just, you know, enhanced their performance a bit. If God went to those who were strong, and of course all strength comes from him ultimately, went to those who are strong and just sort of enhanced their performance a bit, of course, where does the credit go? It goes to them. Whereas if God takes someone who seems to be completely useless and uses them to do great things, where's all the glory go? It goes to God. Because everyone says, well, there's no way that could happen if it weren't for the work of God. And so God uses the weak things of this world to confound the mighty. So if you or I feel strong in our own strengths, we need to forget that. Cast ourselves on God. You know, so often we can feel we've done this before. We know how to do this. You know, I mean, I, I give talks a lot and I think, well, I've given the talk before. I don't need to pray and rely on God so much for this talk because I've given one before. And, you know, that was all right. And every time we need to cast ourselves afresh on God. Are you feeling weak? Great. That is the perfect starting point for God's grace is sufficient for all your need and his power to be on display. What's it mean to feel weak? There's a whole list of this in verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Now, it should be fairly obvious when we look at that list of five things that they're different. Weaknesses aren't the same as insults, aren't the same as hardships, persecutions and calamities. They're all different types of things, aren't they? When you have a crash or a disaster, that's different from an insult. A lack of food is different from a persecution. 
But whatever sort of weakness it is, cast yourself on God and his grace is sufficient. So how does this apply to those who are feeling weak? All of the strength of God is available. And to those who like to feel strong, like to think that their personal dignity really matters. And, and you know, I'm concerned about my personal dignity and image and how, how people um, you know, think of me. We've got to forget that, cast that aside. Christ said we should take up our cross daily. You don't look cool when you're carrying a cross. You don't look like you're successful. And yet God showed his greatest success. The greatest conquest he made was when he looked. Christ looked like a loser in everyone's eyes. And yet he was defeating sin. Well, you might say, well, that's all very well. But I think I've got a thorn and I haven't had the super revelations like Paul. I've got a thorn. I've got no visions. I've got no super experience. I've just got the thorn. Well, Paul's experience was unusual. It was exceptional that he should be told something that he couldn't share with anyone else. The normal order in the Bible is this. It's not vision of paradise and then taking up your cross. It's the cross and then paradise. That's the normal order. And so even if there is no abundant, super extraordinary experience that you've had, we have the order of taking up our cross to follow Christ, refusing the subtle subtleties of the message of successful Christianity. That message that wants to use all of the same vocabulary and actually shifts the focus away from the cross. We need to think of following that and the guarantee of paradise because that has all been bought for us by Christ. The difference between the real Christianity of the cross and this false Christianity can often be hard to discern because there is a subtlety that happens. It happens so um, gradually, even amongst us, in our own experience, that false message is uh, probably in each one of us to some extent that is getting taken up with a story of seeking after success rather than seeking after faithfully following the cross. And how can we know that we have got God's grace with us? Well, it all comes from this. How do we have Christ's strength with us? Because Christ on the cross was abandoned by his father and cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think of Matthew's gospel. Begins with the story about how he's going to be called Emmanuel, God with us. 18 verse 20, two or three gathered. I'm there present. How does it end? I'm with you to the very end of the age. How do we have Christ's presence with us? Precisely because Christ was cut off from his father on the cross. Every grace that we have, everything we experience, is because God has already paid the price, the price for our sins. It's already been paid. That's what we learned in the session from Dave just earlier. It's The price is paid. The grace is given. And whatever trial anyone here is experiencing or will experience in the future, we will be given enough grace. We won't necessarily be told ahead of time. We're not necessarily given more grace than we need, although the grace is abundant. We are given enough grace. And those here who are feeling most weak, most useless, least able to do anything, perhaps too ill to be able to even go on a team or, or, or to be able to concentrate or whatever it is. 
God's grace is made, uh, God's strength is shown in its most perfect form in your weakness. And God will do his great purposes and no one will defeat him. Let's just pray.